You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man, as a two-time felon, I work really hard and I've been, a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to the Freedom Pact. So my guest on the Freedom Pact podcast today is a former CIA, CIA covert intelligence officer who spent seven years undercover before now becoming a businessman um, at Everyday Spy on Instagram. It's Andrew Bustamante. Andrew, welcome to the Freedom Pack podcast, my friend. Hey, I appreciate it, Lewis. I'm happy to be here, brother. It's an absolute pleasure to have you. I see you popping up on so many podcasts and all over my social media at the moment. It must be an exciting time for you. Um, yeah, but when it's an exciting I... time for me, and I, I'm sorry if that's uh, to be overwhelming you. <laughs> <laughs> no, the no, algorithms are at work. Yeah, they certainly are doing you uh, justice, my friend. And um, the first thing when I first started seeing you pop up in all these circles, I started listening to you on these podcasts and really enjoying them. I just remember thinking back to to being a kid when everyone had these careers you know everyone wanted to be a spaceman or a or a spy how does a kid <laughs> go on to become a spy like how does that process even happen i mean when we're in school we see the careers department the careers teacher they direct us towards very you know uh, normal sensible jobs but how does someone end up uh, in the cia Man, you know, I love I love this question because when I went through when I was in fifth grade, that's that's when uh, was it fifth grade? No, it was eighth grade in the United States. In eighth grade, we go through some kind of test that basically tells us what we would be good at for a long term career. And I remember I got my test results and it was that I was supposed to be a truck driver. And I remember I took that result to my mom and my mom was a hard charging woman, right? My mom was, she was just a, a, a super tiger kind of mom. And I took, took it to her and I was like, hey mom, I'm supposed to be a truck driver. Like I'm in, I'm in eighth grade, I'm 13 years old. I'm whatever, like, that's cool. But at least somebody's telling me what to do. And she was so pissed. Pissed in the United States means angry. I think it means drunk in, in the UK. Yeah. <laughs> But she was so angry that she went into the school and just ripped out, like just reamed the, uh, the principal of the school to talk about how useless and stupid this test was and how it was undervaluing the ambitions and goals of her son or whatever else, right? So, so from there, the truth is, I just like most boys, I think I wanted to be a hero of some kind. I wanted to be a cop or I wanted to be a fireman or I wanted to be a soldier or I wanted to be a spy, just like you said. But I never really thought it was possible. Uh, and the road that actually took me to the CIA was kind of a road of a comedy of errors. I was trying to go the exact opposite direction. I was trying to find myself saving children in Africa. And instead, I got tapped on the soldier to serve or tapped on the shoulder to serve with the National Clandestine Service undercover with CIA. Now, that's how I got there. But there are plenty of people who take a very deliberate very systematic approach to getting recruited. They go to the best schools, they find recruiters, they study the right topics, they learn the right languages, 
and they basically set themselves up for as high probability of success as they can. Hmm. So if if CIA is something that, that you or anyone in your audience is thinking about, or if MI6 is something anybody in your audience is thinking about, there's two roads. Either go have a freaking blast and become an awesome person, because they'll tap you on the shoulder. If you're an awesome enough person, they will come find you, because everybody in the world wants to hang out with awesome people. Or you can take the very structured approach, best schools, best study topics, and just basically sacrifice your entire livelihood for one mission, because they also want people who have that level of sacrifice, that level of focus. That's amazing. So your situation is is one of just pure happenstance in a way. And so take me back to that time. What did your life look like at that point? And what was it about you? What traits do you think that you had that got you that tap on the shoulder? Yeah, so I was 27, I was 26 years old when they approached me. Um, I was getting ready to leave the military. So I went to a military college and then I went on to the military within the US government um, and I did not like it. I was not a good fit for the government. I didn't like shaving my face. I didn't like shining my shoes. I didn't like wearing a uniform. And I most definitely didn't like following other people's orders and following rules. Um, I went into the military because I just didn't have a lot of options. I was a poor kid from a rural state. Uh, I had a, a gung-ho mom, but that didn't mean that she was wealthy. She couldn't afford to send me to college, right? Mm -hmm. so, uh, so I went into the military and I was a decent average military officer, but I was always very focused on, uh, on being social. Like I wanted, I wanted to have girlfriends. I wanted to be like, uh, I wanted to be well-connected. I wanted to have people who were friends that would give me things for free. Right. I wanted to, a friend at the gym and a friend at the coffee shop and a friend in the hotel business. And I wanted to be able to like network because for me, at least I always thought there was power in people and I never had money. So if you don't have money to pay for nice things, you need to have friends who hook you up with nice things. Whether or not that was something that made me uh, stand out to CIA, I have no idea. But I do know that when I went to leave and I was willing to, to leave the military and go into third world countries with very little uh, security or very little uh, conveniences because what I wanted to do was I wanted to go to Africa and I wanted to work in hardship to posts, helping children learn English and helping uh, adults learn micro business, right? That's what I wanted to do. When I did get to the interview, that was something that CIA said was very specifically of interest to them, that somebody would be interested in going on these grand adventures and taking great risk at the cost of personal convenience and personal comfort and personal security specifically to fulfill a mission that they felt was important. Hmm. Uh, after they, after they kind of tapped me on the shoulder and they started putting me through the training routine, that's when I started realizing that a lot of the training that we get is just advanced social skills. So if you have basic social skills, you can go very far when you get some social skills training. But the people who were not comfortable making friends, the people who were more inclined to stay in than go out, the people who yeah, didn't like to ask for favors, those folks struggled more with training because they just didn't have the risk tolerance, they didn't have the social um, confidence to put themselves out there and, and ask for something that might get denied. 
Was there an easy decision for you to, to make to say yes? Yeah. As a single 27-year-old man, the easiest decision in the world yeah. is when a, when, when a secret government organization says, do you want to come work for us? I don't, I don't know any 27 year old single male out there who would say, mm, no, I think I'm going to be pretty good. Just staying in my mom's basement. <laughs> I don't think that's going to happen. You mentioned that, um, so many people who, who plan a career like this, they, they do a lot to put themselves in the best possible position. Um, but you mentioned there that training actually just looks like a, a magnified, um, version of learning so, uh, social skills. Um, if you could, in a way, um, as much as you can, what does that sort of training period look like, and and or how you, well your your experiences were with training, and how long a process is that before you're sort of, you know, eligible to do the job? Yeah, so there's a lot of classified information inside your question, so I'm going to dodge that, but I can yeah. still answer you, right? So the training period takes most of a full year. So you're falling off the face of the planet, basically, for a very long time. You've got to kind of wrap up or tie off social relationships, romantic relationships, family relationships, because people just won't be able to talk to you. They won't be able to call you. They won't be able to mail you. They won't be able to write. They won't be able to reach you because you're you're living in a secret space that's totally controlled. Mm. So you're you're not really there anymore. So if you have a girlfriend calling you, or if you have your mom is trying to send you packages, it's going to get, it's going to get awkward. So that's a long period. Now, the period of time before you start to actually understand the skills is relatively short. In only about maybe 14 days or so, the initial training skills start to sink in. And you start to realize that, that espionage is just an extension of everyday life. Walking when you're trying to catch surveillance on a surveillance detection route, it's not that different than going for a Sunday morning drive or going for an afternoon walk. And where it is different, it's only 10% different. So a lot of what you already do, especially if you're already security conscious and you already pay attention to your surroundings, it's really just about fine tuning and improving those things just a little bit. So a lot, and that's, that goes for the social skills, that goes for everything from secret communication to sending covert signals or, uh, or even operating at night. Hmm. There are so many things that are really just, it's just a boost to something that you already know. And I think that speaks not necessarily to the fact that espionage is easy. I think it speaks more to the fact that CIA recruits people or the and MI6 does the same thing, Mossad, uh, SBR, First world intelligence services, secret intelligence agencies, they're recruiting people who are already predisposed to that kind of lifestyle. Mm. They're, not, they're not recruiting people who are shut-ins. They're not recruiting people who have uh, you know, major, major social anxiety. They're recruiting people with a little bit of social anxiety, just enough social anxiety so that you don't trust anyone, just enough social anxiety so you're not the center of attention, but they, so they want a little bit of social anxiety, but they don't want a, a catastrophic amount of social anxiety. Um, and that's why in just a few weeks, they can get you the beginnings of training, but it does take the full, essentially the full year before you're operational. And when they send you out on your first operation, it's usually kind of like a junior varsity or a JV lightweight operation 
with lots of close supervision so that you can stay safe, but they also want to make sure that the operation that you're on is also safe. So they can't trust you with your own operation and they can't necessarily trust you to keep yourself safe on that operation because you're still green. You're brand new. You've had training, but never real field operations. So you mentioned um, that it was, you know, really seductive, really attractive offer to a, to a young man who wasn't tied down at all. But later on down the line, when you, you know, you chose to, to come away from that world and, and enter this one of, of business and everything you do now, what were some of the underlying motivations and factors that, you know, made you want to leave all that behind? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think you nailed it with your, with your question, right? Um, when you're a single young man with no responsibilities, the world is a big adventure and you really don't have anything to lose. I don't think, you know, your average 25 year old, whether they're working in Wall Street or whether they're in the military, they're not really thinking about hurting mom if they die in the field, right? Mm -hmm. They're not really thinking about that. But when, when you fast forward, um, I left when I was 34 uh, years old and I had a one-year-old son and I had been married for four years. So when you're looking at your life through the lens of a married man, that's dedicated your life to a spouse and you're starting to create um, the next generation of, of your family line, all of a sudden working and, and living and traveling in alias to dangerous places isn't such a sexy appeal. Um, and it's specifically what happened to my wife was also CIA with me. My wife was also an undercover officer with me. So for her, she was having the same realization. When she was a 27 year old single female, she loved traveling the world. She loved being undercover. She loved, you know, all of the sexiness and the, and the attractiveness of the adventure. But now she's also a 42-year-old mom and also a spouse. So priorities changed for her too. When we took that to CIA and we said, hey, our lifestyle has changed. We still want to be of value to our country. We still want to be, uh, you know, high-impact, high-performing intelligence officers but what we don't want to do is try to be both that and the parents to young children. Mm -hmm. So what we specifically asked CIA to do is give us a very stable, predictable assignment, something kind of boring for five years. That way we could raise our first child to get him into school and have our second child that we wanted to have and get a second child, boy or girl, turned out to be a girl. But we wanted to get our second child to a place where they could be in preschool or kindergarten. So then they would have something to do to educate them during the day. And we could come back to more adventurous work with CIA. But unfortunately, when you work with the, uh, with the federal government, when you work in secret intelligence, you go wherever they want you to go. At least that's how it used to be back in 2014. Um, now CIA has had to change that way because they've had so many people leave. They've had so much attrition that they can't, they don't have the opportunity to just tell the new generation of employees to pound sand. Now they have to scramble to make sure they recruit real talent because they've got to be competitive in a world that's hungry for high performing individuals. How difficult is it to navigate things like relationship, family, friends, hobbies, just a life when you're doing something like a covert intelligence officer? I imagine that is a very, very tricky balance to try and strike if you can't even balance it 
Yeah, you really don't try to balance it, to be honest. You just give up everything else. You wow. basically, um, I married a, I married an officer. So yeah. my wife and I were a married couple. So we understood the sacrifice. We understood the job. So for our marriage, it kind of worked out. I, she didn't ask a lot of questions about my ops and I didn't ask questions about her ops. But we knew that each other was under a certain kind of stress. So we could support each other. We could comfort each other. We could, we could, uh, we could walk into a building a covert building facility together and talk it out, right? We had the ability to do that. When you're not married to another intelligence officer, you don't have that opportunity. Yeah. But we didn't have social lives. We didn't have friends. Uh, everybody we knew, everybody we were friends with was another undercover intelligence officer with us, mm -hmm. uh, which was part of what made leaving so hard because we spent seven years building relationships that only existed within the covert network that we had. And when we left the agency, we had to leave that entire covert network behind because you can't you can't talk to an undercover officer while you yourself are an overt declared ex CIA officer mm. because that creates a trail a digital trail uh, a network that can connect an adversary with someone who's still currently undercover so it was kind of lonely to leave but it was uh, it wasn't that hard to start all over again because we had already been through the the cycle of losing all of our friends and stopping stopping all of our relationships and starting it one more time so yeah you were both in this field which means you could have made that you, you know made that relationship work but would you say it would have been impossible or almost impossible to strike up any form of meaning meaningful relationship um romantic relationship whilst doing that job with uh, with somebody who's not another intelligence officer? Is that yeah, what you mean? A, it's just an everyday, normal working person. Yeah, you know, the, the it's much harder. Some yeah. people can do it. However, it's, it's very rare that they do it well. Yeah. There are plenty of people who meet, fall in love, and get married, and they're undercover, and their spouse is not. Hmm. And then what ends up happening in a lot of cases is when they tell the spouse the truth, the spouse feels betrayed. They yeah. feel lied to. Even if they're proud to know that, you know, oh, the, the man or the woman I was dating is so elite that they belong to CIA, even if that's how they feel, their entire life changes once they find out the truth. Mm. Because now, once they find out the truth, now the, the dynamic in the relationship is different. Because before, anybody who's dated, anybody who's gotten married knows that everything changes once you get married. You go from being two individuals to being one unit. You go from having two sets of dreams that you talk about to one dream that you both chase. So that's hard enough for two people who are being honest with each other the whole time that they're dating. Hmm. It's only harder when one person is hiding something, even if it's a requirement by federal law, and then they get married and then they have to be one unit chasing one dream. It's, it doesn't work very well. Often it doesn't work very well, which is why CIA has one of the highest divorce rates in all federal service. And it's also one of the reasons why uh, so many CIA officers end up taking on some kind of uh, substance abuse. They become alcoholic or they become drug abusers or they become uh, systematic, you know, uh, uh, emotionally kind of challenged people because they really are giving up everything. And then when they're reaching an age where they also give up the potential for a happy marriage and the potential for a happy family, 
it's oftentimes kind of a one bridge too far and it, it breaks them mentally and emotionally uh, and CIA doesn't mind because somebody who's a, who has nobody else to turn to is somebody who's going to work for the rest of their life. So it's not really in their best interest to, to give you emotional support or help you with marriage counseling. It's more interesting to them to just make sure that you keep doing the job and you, you stay loyal to CIA. So now you're in this situation where you, you can do these things, you can have a family, you can uh, build relationships, friends, networks, you can you know appear on many podcasts. I just wonder, and obviously you're incredibly clued up on the logistics of this, but I just wonder what the level of risk is for you talking about your career and how careful you have to be when you are navigating the subject. And if you ever find yourself in situations you know, where you, you think, I could get in trouble for talking about this. Yeah, there's a couple of things there for me. So the, the biggest risk is actually not, it's not from the federal government. It's not from the United States. It's not from the West. Mm. The biggest risk that I face is if by some chance, some foreigner who I've worked with in the past identifies me through one of these podcasts or mm. through one of these YouTube videos. Now, I have a very high confidence that that's not going to happen. Yeah. I don't look the way I used to look. I don't sound the way I used to sound, right? Like my physical body is different. My face is different. My hair is different. It's all very different. Yeah. And I don't talk about my specific operations from the past yeah. because though that operational history is very strictly monitored by CIA. So if I want to talk about those specifics, I actually have to get it all formally approved in advance. But when it comes to the, the concepts, the practical application of what CIA taught me and how I use it in my life and in my business, that's an area that CIA hasn't really defined. They've never had this in the past. If you think about it, it it's the, the British government is the same way. Governments move slowly, right? Governments don't evolve very quickly. They don't want to evolve quickly. They, they kind of double down on slow methodical change that, that makes for long-term consistency. So if you look at that and compare that against the world of podcasts, the world of YouTube, the world of social media, those are all tools and platforms that evolve very, very quickly, mm. right? Um, uh, there are social media apps that come and go in less than a year. And when it comes to how they, how CIA can uh, policy, can police or control content creators specifically, it's, that's a really hard world for them to make a policy around. Mm -hmm. Are you responsible for my content when I'm on your podcast? Am I responsible for my content when I'm on your podcast? Do I have to clear what I say with you if I'm saying the same thing that I said somewhere else? It, it makes a huge bureaucratic mess. Mm -hmm. And for that reason, like most bureaucracies, I think they just turn the other way. I'm not causing them any issues. I'm not causing them any harm. And if anything, they're trying to find a way to reach out to a new generation of people anyways. Uh, and if they don't, they can't do it as fast as I can do it, then it makes sense for them to just let me keep talking. So I know you've, you've taken the skills you've acquired over this career, and you're now teaching them to people to use in sort of everyday life, business situations. So I just wanted to touch on a few sort of buzz questions that came up in my mind could you give us 
any sort of um, indicators? Are there any triggers to look for when you are trying to assess whether an individual is lying? Yeah. So lie detection is probably one of the most challenging things to discuss. Um, and I'm, I, I say it very frankly and very honestly, anyone who tries to teach you that lie detection is fast or easy, they're lying. You just, you just don't know that they're lying because lie detection is hard, right? But they are lying to your face because they're trying to sell something or they're trying to look like an expert when they're not, or they're trying to claim some skill exists that doesn't really exist. In the professional world, lie detection takes a long time. There's two types of environments where you have to worry about detecting lies. One is an interrogation environment, which is a controlled environment, a closed environment, right? That means you and I are sitting in a room, I'm the interrogator and you are not allowed to leave. It's like if the police arrest you, or if, you're, if you remember being 10 years old, it's when mom used to call you into the kitchen and you had to sit across from her, right? Hmm. Those are like, you're trapped, you can't get away. In those interrogation kind of settings, the tools are different to detect lies because the pressure is different. The environment is different. The level of control you have over your subject is different. The threat level is different. If you, what most people will encounter is actually uh, a, an individual who's trying to lie to them in an uncontrolled environment, out on the street, out on a date where people are free to move. So if you and I went to a movie, if you and I went for a walk down the street, went to an ice cream shop or a coffee shop, if you don't like what I'm saying, you can just walk away. I don't have any control over you, right? It's not a closed environment. It's not a controlled environment. It's an uncontrolled open environment. So if I appear threatening to you, you're going to leave. You're not going to just lie. You're going to lie and then depart, unlike in an interrogation situation. Mm -hmm. So the true way that you determine if someone's lying to you in an open environment is you have to be with them for a long enough time that you can identify their baseline behavior, their baseline eye movements, their baseline facial movements, their baseline physical tics, their baseline level of attention, their baseline verbal tone, their baseline word choice. You have to understand what their normal baseline is before you can start measuring how that baseline changes based on the questions that you ask. So it's, it takes hours, it takes days sometimes. Um, very, very few people can confidently say that someone is lying or not lying without just essentially outright guessing based on parameters that have a high margin of error. Mm-hmm. And, and when you're a professional, if you're guessing on a high margin of error, you're, you'd, better, you'd be better off not to guess at all because if you're wrong, everything falls apart. You mentioned there that you know the it's you know so it's a long process and that you can pick up pick up on you know certain little ticks here or there, and it makes me think to like really corny you know detective spy shows where the detective will bust the case by saying oh, I looked up he looked to the left when he said that is there anything in terms of reading into that sort of stuff? Not in reality, not, no. not for detecting lies, mm-hmm. right? So there are ways that you can detect truth because there are certain things that are very consistent that happen when you're detecting truth, right? So like, for example, uh, Lewis, if I, if I were to ask you right now, right? Um, 
think back to a time that made you happy and tell me what you remember. Now stop right there. Your eyes moved up and to the right. I know with high probability that you were thinking a truthful thought when you did that hmm. because, because uh, if, unless we're, yeah, because depending on if we're mirrored or not, your memory, memory lives in like a spectrum okay. in our visual spectrum. So we kind of have this chronological left to right image in our head whenever we're referencing our own memories. Yeah. So when you looked up, and then from my point of view, you looked up and to the right, which yeah. may be up and to the left from your point of view. All that shows is that you're referencing that visual, that visual reference because that visual reference exists physically behind your forehead. So you're looking up to reach that area behind your forehead. But whether you're looking left or right, all it tells me is whether you're referencing a part of your early life or a part of your recent life. Right. So. I don't know when you started thinking about it, what came to your mind? Was it a childhood memory? Was it a recent memory? Was it an adult memory? What, what did you think of? I was trying to think back to my childhood. So that, so if, if that's the case, then I'm guessing that we're actually mirrored and you yeah. were looking up and to the left yeah. from the room where you're at. That's right. Yeah. Right. That's a sign of truthful behavior. Mm. So when you hear people say that liars look up and to the right, that's not always the case. It depends on the question. And it depends on the baseline. But when I want to see if you're actually going to try to tell me an honest answer, I'm looking for you to reference your visual memory, your visual cortex. So I'm looking for you to look up and then I can assess what part of your memory you're looking at based on the direction of your eyes. Wow, man, I love this stuff. It's so, so fascinating. And this sort of brings me on to the work you do now. People may be thinking, you know, at the start of the episode when I said that you teach this sort of everyday spy training, if people were thinking, you know, what could these spy traits really benefit me in my day-to-day -day life? I'm not a, a CIA agent. What would you tell those people in terms of how they can take these traits and implement them into everyday life or how are they important in the business world, for example? Yeah. So let me give you two really quick recent examples. So one of my most popular training programs out there is a, it's a fully digital program. It's all something that's on demand. Hmm. Right. And the only thing it's there to do is guarantee you a 12,000 US dollar raise by the end of the year. Wow. Now, for a lot of people making $12,000 more than what they're making right now is almost impossible. They don't know how they would be able to do that. CIA skills show you how to build influence, how to build the perception of talent, how to build uh, a, a group of advocators who kind of cheer, not just cheer you up, but cheer for you publicly. And when you have the perception of, of, uh, of expertise and you have influence against or influence in the face of your employer or your boss, and you have other people who are telling the boss how awesome you are, those three things are exactly the foundation for asking for a promotion and getting it, hmm. right? But then you can see how difficult this is for most people because they can't build those three skills on their own. And then they have no idea how to ask for a promotion. Hmm. And the reason they don't know how to ask for a promotion is because they've never had to ask for a promotion when they have those three things already in the bag. Hmm. So like it's become one of my most popular products um, my most popular programs, especially for people under the age of like 32, 33, yeah. 
Because if you're making $70,000 a year, you could be making $82,000 a year next year. If you're making $40,000 a year, you could be making $52,000 a year, right? It's not until people are making like $150,000 a year that $12,000 isn't that important to them. So that's one simple tool, right? That's one example of how you can use it in your career. For business owners, business owners are always interested in doing one of three things. They either want to grow their business, they want to sell their business, or they want to build a business. That's, those are the only grow, sell, or build. If they're trying to grow a business, spy skills help them with marketing, spy skills help them with operations, prioritization, managing stress, uh, prioritizing resources, uh, taking risks, right? Lots of ways that you can use it because growing a business is a lot like going doing an operation. Selling a business is a lot like getting a promotion. You have to know how to talk to people, how to convince people of your trustworthiness and the value of your business and the long-term value of what your business is doing, right? So for people who are business owners, they spend their whole life growing this awesome business and they've never thought about selling it. So then when the day comes that they have to think about how do I sell this thing, they're starting all over again with a skill set they know nothing about. So spy skills come in handy there as well. Essentially, all the spy skills do is they don't teach you anything that you can't learn in college. That's not the goal. You can learn that from a book, but they shortcut how fast and how powerful the learning process happens. Hmm. That's what CIA does for us. Like I said, CIA shows us how to do an SDR. They show us how to shoot a gun or they show us how to, uh, how to defend ourselves with self-defense or close combat quarter or close quarter combat. They're not teaching us something that we've never seen before. They're just showing us the shortcut to learn it fastest and with the most impact. I love that, man. And, and that's why I really enjoy content like yours or stuff by maybe like Chris Voss, who, who you know, uh, who teaches the art of negotiation, persuasion. These are all skills that we can develop. And um, when I uh, announced that you were coming on and I put it on our social media and asked for some, some questions that the audience would like to put to you, I'd like to put a couple of those to you now. Um, I mentioned uh, Chris Voss there. When we've had guys like um, Chris Voss on or, or, or other sort of uh, personalities from a, a federal background, it's mostly met with really positive comments, really positive reception. But we've noticed that every now and again, you'll get like certain comments that say, I don't trust feds. Uh, they're all corrupt. They, you know, a couple of these comments, will, they'll squeak through every every so often. And so what would you say to the people that have a real distaste for, you know, personalities coming out of the federal space? Is the, is the CIA corrupt? Is there any sort of credence to these claims? What would you say to those people that would, would point to that? Yeah, so there's a, there's a, a rule of logic out there called uh, called Harlan's razor. Hmm. And, and that rule of logic, it's a, it's a way of protecting yourself from making a logical flaw, right? Harlan's laser razor says that never prescribe to conspiracy that which can be explained with idiocy, right? Or stupidity. Hmm. What happens is so many of these angry suspicious conspiratorial voices that are out there, mm. they're giving the government way too much credit 
they're convincing themselves that somehow, somehow this organization that is full of, you know, mediocre performers for the most part with a few high performers, these people are somehow running the greatest, Mm -hmm. most secret conspiracy ever imaginable. Mm -hmm. And that they're somehow also so incredibly corrupt that their corruption is also being systematically hidden from the American people successfully. Mm-hmm. Right there. I think you had Neil deGrasse Tyson on recently yeah. and he talked about how incredibly inefficient government is conspiracy and keeping things secret requires intense, intense efficiency. Mm-hmm. So it just, there's nothing, frankly speaking as a business owner and as a, as a, um, like a, a a person who prioritizes my time Mm. when you're dealing with people who are so far gone that they have convinced themselves of these conspiracies and paranoia, like they, they become endemic in their own brain. Those are people that are not worth your time. And what's really fascinating, Lewis, is that the very people who want to say how, how wrong you are and how corrupt you are and how stupid you are, the very people who want to say that don't even realize that they're amplifying your message because the more that they comment, the more that they thumbs down, the more that they make, you know, angry emojis, the algorithms in the social media universe, they see all that as engagement Hmm. and then they reward the content by spreading it even further. So it's a fascinating duality where these people are trying to like hate you and they're trying to talk shit about you, but they're, they're massively boosting your message to a wider and wider audience. So they're almost so silly. They're so, they're so uh, ignorant that they don't even realize that their ignorance is benefiting the very same voice they're trying to shoot down. Yeah, I was actually thinking of that exact example um, before you brought it up. Yeah, I think it was yeah Neil deGrasse Tyson when I asked him about um, UFOs, and he said that it's easier for him to believe that they exist than that they believe that they exist, but the government was able to keep it a secret from the rest of the world. Um, <laughs> and that was that was also a subject that that was asked a lot, and I didn't really want to ask it to you because you know you you don't box you know you're you're not a self-proclaimed ufo expert or anything but someone uh pointed to a upcoming um government report that they're supposed to release um in the next week or so on ufo ufo intelligence and i wanted to ask your opinion on should we really put too much stock in these reports because what i see a lot of is people saying wow there's a a report on on ufo intelligence that means that you know they know we're putting the pressure on them they, they're gonna have to release the information when you know a ufo doesn't necessarily mean an alien aircraft and so should we really care and buy too much into these governments reports and get swept up or should we just take it for what it is yeah it's a great question Lewis. so keep in mind that the government doesn't release secrets unless it benefits the government to release those secrets, mm. right? There's, there is no secret that the government wants to keep that it's going to release willingly. It's just right. not going to happen. Yeah. So those, the UFO commission and, or the UAP ATIP program, all these things, they're all focused around security of, of air resources, mm. right? Air traffic control, commercial airlines, 
uh, airline safety and security standards. That's what they're all focused on. So when they release information, they're doing it for one of two reasons. One, it's going to help ensure the security of the air, right? So if it's an astronaut, if it's an astrolog, I'm sorry, a uh, atmospheric phenomenon that puts a commercial airliner at risk, CIA doesn't want to get caught holding that secret when some United Airlines flight crashes because of some whatever, some weird lenticular cloud over uh, the Rocky Mountains. They don't want to do that. So they're going to release that because it's in their best interest. They found out the fact, they released the fact, they're, they're doing the right thing. The other reason they release secrets is because they're trying to use it in a larger information campaign, a larger information war. So just like you're saying, all the unexplained aerial phenomenon that are going on out there, there's a perfectly logical reason for all of them. Hmm. We just may not know what that logical reason is. And CIA may not know what that logical reason is. Hmm. There's like, is it a, is it a reconnaissance vehicle that, uh, that was launched by a foreign aggressor? Is it an experimental uh, U.S. military design that's being created by Raytheon? We don't know what the things are, are they, if they're man-made or not, but we know that the highest probability outcome, the, high, the most likely explanation is that it is something terrestrial. It's something we built, something that a human being built, and now it's in the sky. That's the most logical phenomenon. So when you, when you leap to the conclusion that because there's a secret government report that was released about an unknown aerial phenomenon, it must mean that aliens are real. That's actually a cognitive flaw. That's, your, that's a cognitive bias where you're, a, it's called a heuristic. You're trying to apply your beliefs to an existing, uh, an existing piece of information instead of taking the piece of information and assessing it with reason and logic to determine what the most logical conclusion of that information is. Mm-hmm. Right now, the United States and the West at large are are up against two major foes, Russia and China. If Russia or China is creating any kind of aerial cruise missile, hypersonic missile, any kind of new uh, you know, upper, upper atmospheric weapon, it's going to be in the US government's best interest to release a little bit of that information because it sends the message to the Russians and the Chinese, we know that you're doing this. Yes. We're telling the American people that it could be a UFO or we're letting them believe it might be an alien. But the message isn't for the American people. The message is for you. You've been caught on camera. We know you're developing this technology. So don't try to use it against us. Hmm. Right. It's very similar to what happened in the Cuban Missile Crisis when people started releasing intelligence reports about Cuban missile buildup or Russian missile buildup in Cuba. It's also what happened right before the Ukraine invasion. If you recall, in the weeks leading up to Ukraine, the U.S. government was releasing all this secret information about how an invasion was imminent, right? They're using it as a tool of information warfare to intimidate and deter a foreign aggressor from taking action. There's uh, two or three more questions I wanted to get through before our time is up. And yeah, just and, the... and I'm sorry my answers are all so long, man. I apologize. No, it's amazing. I, I love it. Um, I feel like I could go on all day, but I'll try not to. The, we're talking about, you know, conspiracies there and, and people buying into conspiracies. I remember being in, um, I remember being in my place of work a couple of years back and having a conversation with a colleague who was telling me about, you know, how we're always being watched and 
how you shouldn't use Google or you shouldn't have your webcam open and saying, oh, that's how the government's watching you. And I remember thinking, does the government really care about, you know, a young gym instructor from the South Wales Valleys? Like, surely they got better things to do with their time. So my question would be, to what extent are the government really watching us? And do they even care about the everyday average Joe? Yeah, so this is, I love this question too, because it, that conspiratorial theory about the government mm. is so off base because the government doesn't care. The government is there to protect the government. Mm. They care if you're a terrorist. Yeah. They care if you're some underground money launderer. They care if you're smuggling drugs. They care about those things. So if you're trying to hide that in your social media or if you're trying to hide that, then yes, you should cover up your webcam because most likely there's some kind of legal document that has given the local law enforcement or the national law enforcement the ability to track you as an individual with the intent of arresting you. Wow. But if you're just a normal Joe, like a guy who goes and works at a gym in South Wales or whatever, nobody cares about you. Nobody in the government cares about you. I would hope that this would be obvious because when was the last time the government did anything to help you? Right. Yeah. The government doesn't care about you. However, corporations care very much about how you use your tools. Mm -hmm. So do you want to know who's really watching? Google is really watching. Mm -hmm. Zoom is really watching. Right. Your your iPhones, your tablets, your logins, your Instagram accounts, they're all collecting tons of invasive private data about you, not because they're going to. The law makes it so that they can't they can't put Lewis's name with Lewis's privacy data and sell it on the open market. They can't do that. But they can take Lewis's private private data and they can put it behind some random serial code and sell that yeah. on the open market, right? Here's the behavior of a I don't know how old are you? 27ish? How old are you? Yeah, 26. Here's a 26-year-old male living in this zip code, and here's what his behavior looks like online for the month of October 2022. And we are selling this profile to anybody who wants it for $11.97, right? And to Nike or to you know Manchester United, they're going to buy that data all day long because they want to know how to sell you tickets. They want to know how to get you to cheer for their for their. Uh, football team, they want to know how to get you to take advantage of the next sale. So you buy uh, a new sweatshirt or a new ball cap, mm. right? The government doesn't care about your private data. They don't. Corporations care very much. That's why they give you so many easy ways to compromise your security data by just clicking yes to cookies and yes, turn on my camera and yes, use my Google location services. <laughs> so if I if the if we were in a scenario now where the government did have reason to want to follow this you know uh, gym instructor from the the South Wales Valleys and I really wanted to go off grid, but I've been a person that's had Facebook, Instagram, I've had multiple uh, mobile phones, personal devices, laptops, locations turned on and all of them all my life. Is it possible for me to achieve going off grid? Can I get to that stage? And if so, what steps would I need to take to get there? Yeah, you can absolutely disappear for sure. You've got to remember that you disappearing doesn't look like a black hole. Hmm. That's not what you would do. 
like the whole idea of going ghost and then basically being a black hole, that doesn't exist. The way that you would disappear is you would stop looking like you and start looking like someone else, some other serial code, right? So that's how we do it. That's how we do it professionally. And that's how it's done by criminals. And that's how it's done by professionals. Mm. You can totally, and then in that alternate persona, you could get to a place where you could fully go off grid and live off the land in the mountains, if that's what you wanted to do, right? Mm. Fishing in a stream for your food, living off of campfires and, you know, whatever, however wild you want to go, however native you want to go. The specific steps to get there aren't as complicated as you would think either. There's kind of two ways to do it. So one way is fully legal. So you basically take however much money you have in your bank account and you convert it to cash, right? So now if you have $25,000, you go pull it out of your bank account. Now you have $25,000 in cash. Cash is not trackable. So you take that $25,000 in cash, you leave every electronic device that you own right where it is, plugged in, charged up, sending its signals all day long. That way, anybody who sees you, anybody looking for you, looking at you, sees the signals. So it looks like you're still sitting in your living room. Hmm. Meanwhile, you walk out the front door with a duffel bag full of clothes, right? Maybe you have like a ball cap or some clothes you don't normally wear so you don't look like yourself and $25,000 in cash. You go down the street, you buy a debit card in cash. Have you ever seen those uh, Hmm. commercial debit cards? Yeah. So you buy $1,000 or $2,000 in a debit card that's tied to cash and you just throw away the name, right? It can be a gift card for all you care. You put, you call it Nancy. It's for Nancy Andreas, Mm. even though it's actually yours. And then you go to the next shop over and you use that debit card to buy a temporary phone or to buy minutes on a temporary phone, whatever it might be, right? All, all tools that you don't have to register. These are things that you don't have to register to your true name. And then once you have those devices, then you order an Uber or you buy your food or you do whatever you got to do on this fake phone that's not attributable to your name. And you go do whatever you want to do. You spend your $1,000 in debit cards and then you still have $24,000 in cash to live off the land or to go buy hardwood and nails and build yourself a little shelter out in the woods. That's how you do it legally. If you want to do it illegally, you basically just, you pickpocket somebody else's phone or you, you steal somebody else's phone while they're using it. So it's unlocked. Yeah. And then you basically have like probably six to 12 hours to use that person's phone in an unlocked state before they're able to get to a shop or a store or make some sort of complaint that shuts down access to that phone. Yeah. So now from anyone looking, it just looks like you stole Anna Maria's phone. So now you are Anna Maria on Google location services and everything else. Mm. And no one is going to be able to, to, um, connect that you are actually Lewis who left your apartment four blocks away and then stole Anna Maria's phone. And now you've been using it for the last 12 hours to get yourself out of the city. Yeah. It's fascinating. Cause I always, I've always assumed you would need to just throw away, you know, everything don't switch on any devices, but then I look at someone like a, like an Edward Snowden who's managed to, you know, stay under the radar for so long, but then he's managed to do that whilst, doing podcast appearances yeah so he's a different case because he's got states protecting him Mm. right he's doing appearances from russia he's doing appearances from outside of the united states yeah right away from where law enforcement and jurisdiction can reach him Mm. so if if you wanted to disappear off the u.s grid that's different than totally disappearing off the grid at all Mm. because you can always just you can just buy an airplane ticket 
and fly from the UK to Morocco and just set up a cell phone in Morocco. And now all of a sudden you're going to look like a Moroccan resident to anybody who's observing the data, you know, anybody who's watching you on the web or the internet. So I just have a couple of questions left that we ask every guest quick fire ones before we sign off. Um, the first one, I wonder, as there, I don't know if you're much of a reader, but have there been any books throughout your life that have had a big impact on you or the skills you've developed or just who you are now? Absolutely. So it's a fiction book and it's a classic. It's called Ender's Game. Hmm. Uh, Ender's Game by Orson Scott Wells, I think it is. Um, it's a fantastic book about basically like a child soldier who does what everybody tells him to do. He's a very talented young soldier. And then he finds out that he's being manipulated by a larger government for things that they're not, they're not telling him about. But I think it's an excellent story to help you understand how much talent you have as an individual and how if you let yourself become hyper-focused on what you're good at, you're leaving yourself vulnerable for other people to abuse you and use you for the very talent that you have. Amazing. I love the uh, I love when someone recommends a fiction book. And just going, uh, just taking a little detour there, thinking back to the Neil deGrasse Tyson episode that you mentioned, um, he was talking about how he sometimes struggles to watch uh, sci-fi movies without wanting to pick them apart is andrew bustamante able to enjoy a james bond movie no a andrew <laughs> bustamante cannot watch spy fiction i cannot read spy fiction wow. because you're you're exactly right you pick it apart i've gotten a little bit better i've gotten a little bit better because now what i do is i only watch movies where my friends my former cia friends have had something to do with the production and development of that movie yeah. And then I watch the movie specifically to see their influence on the movie. Mm. So a quick, I'll make a quick shameless plug. A good friend of mine was the CIA advisor to the movie Gray Man on Netflix. Okay. So if you watch the movie Gray Man on Netflix, nothing that you see in terms of action and adventure is real. None of the tradecraft is real. None of the fighting is real. None of that stuff is real. However, the way that the two... Uh, intelligence officers talk to each other the snarkiness the like contemptuousness the the crass way the crass language that they use all of that is extremely accurate mm. so it's fantastic to watch the movie not because of the motorcycle chase scenes on a train which would never happen <laughs> but because the way that they just bash each other after the scene is over mm. is extremely real and it's really refreshing and it's enjoyable in that way Amazing. Have you ever tried to watch a, a James Bond or a Jason Bourne or anything like that? Yeah, I try to watch them every now and then because my wife is the antithesis of me. My wife still loves to watch spy fiction okay. because it makes her remember how cool it was and how how sexy it was and how much fun she had. But she's she doesn't look for the reality in the movie. Yeah. She just enjoys the suspension of reality. So... With my wife, I'll sit on the couch next to her and, you know, we'll watch an old James Bond movie. I don't even know what the new James Bond, I haven't seen a new James Bond movie in a long time. I don't know which one we're on anymore. <laughs> There's way too many to count. But my last question I ask every guest, and this could be anything, it could be your work, your business, your family. For Andrew Bustamante right now, what makes a life worth living? My kids. Absolutely, my kids. And I feel guilty every time I say that because it makes me feel like I'm discounting my wife yeah. who's dedicated her life to me and who's dedicated her life to my kids, right? Our kids. 
every time I put my kids as the thing that I just am so proud of and so in love with, I always feel like I'm undermining my wife. Um, and I hope that when she hears this and when any wife hears this, uh, that they'll give me a little bit of grace and recognize that without my wife, I would never have my kids. So I'm trying to bring honor to them all by honoring my kids first. That's, that's the thing that gets me up every morning, my friend. Beautifully, beautifully put, sir. So we've talked a lot um, about, you know, your life and what you do today. What you do now is, you know, you, you teach these everyday spy skills and courses. We've mentioned a couple, we've referenced a few. Where can we point the audience to if they wanted to check out some of the things we've mentioned or connect, you know, more with yourself and find out more about you? Yeah, absolutely. You can find me at my homepage, everydayspy.com. That's, you'll reach that website anywhere in the world and be able to, to explore what I teach, get free content, sign up for my, my newsletter is highly popular. It's all right there at everydayspy.com. Uh, if you want to follow me on social media, you'll find me everywhere with the handle at everydayspy. I'm the most active on uh, LinkedIn, on uh, Instagram. Uh, I'm less active on Twitter, but I'm there. So you'll find me everywhere at Everyday Spy. And if you like YouTube or if you like podcasting, then you'll either find my YouTube channel, which is called Everyday Spy, or you can find my podcast on your favorite podcast platform. And my podcast is called Everyday Espionage. And I've been blessed to have a top 1% performing podcast in the world. So if you find me on the podcast world, that's where I'm at, at Everyday Espionage Podcast. Amazing. I'm sure these guys listening will go and flock towards that. I'll leave all the links you mentioned there in the description below. Andrew, what an absolute pleasure it's been to host you on the podcast today, my friend. I know this has been in the works for a while. We had some scheduling issues, but I'm so glad it happened. It's been an absolutely enjoyable hour. Awesome. I appreciate it, Lewis, and I look forward to seeing you continue to bring in some awesome guests, man.